for the reading of our passage this morning. From 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You may be seated. I'm going to say a name, and I'm going to guess there's not going to be many of you people who know this name. I think there may be somebody who does, and he may not like this name, so we'll just let it ride for a second. The name is Jim Layritz. Anybody know Jim Layritz? Not, not like he's not from around here. He's, he's <laughs> old man Layritz's boy. Yeah, I know him. That's not who I'm talking about. Jim Layritz was a backup catcher slash utility man for the New York Yankees for a few years. And in 1996, the year I got married, sorry, Aaron, um, the Yankees and the Braves were playing in the World Series. The Yankees were down 2-1 to one in the series. They were down 6-3 to three in game four. And Jim Layritz came up in the eighth inning and hit a three-run home run. And the Yankees would go on to win that game in extra innings and then go on to win the World Series as they finished out the Braves after that. If Jim Layritz had not hit his three-run home run against Mark Wohlers, who threw about 100 miles an hour, the Yankees would not have won that World Series nor any of the ones that they would go on to win throughout the rest of the 90s and early 2000s. But ain't none of y'all ever heard a Jim Layritz, except Aaron, sorry. He's a Braves fan. Jim Layritz is what we call a utility man, a role player. And that means that they do whatever they're called on to do. He was a backup catcher. He wasn't the starting catcher. Jorge Posada was. And everybody at that time in baseball knew who Jorge Posada was because he was, he was really good. Jim Layritz actually was just in the game because... They had pinch hit for Jorge Posada, and Jim Leritz came in to be the backup catcher. But he comes in and he actually hits the big bomb that would help them to win the game. And these utility men, these role players, play whatever position. They pinch hit. They're not the out front star, but they are irreplaceable. Just like roles in a movie, right? There are some movies where I guess you could do without some characters, but every character's got a role to play. And every character's in the credits, right? 
I want to read the definition for role, R-O-L-E. Role, an actor's part in a play or a movie, etc. And then there's this definition, the function assumed or part played by a person or thing in a particular situation. What was it The Rock said all the time? Know your role, right? Everybody knows that, right? I, mean, I know The Rock, yeah. We know, I don't know Jim Lairers, but we know The Rock. Know your role. Sorry. I'm not bitter at all or anything like that. But what happens when you try to squeeze something into a role that it's not supposed to be squeezed into? I've got some pictures for you all. Are you ready? These are phenomenal. You're not ready, by the way. Come on, wake up. Look at that. It's a chair, and it's some books, and it's serving a role, right? Oh, it gets better. I don't know if you'll be able to see this writing. If not, I'll read it for you. It says, to ring doorbell, connect wires. That note is serving its role, right? This is my favorite one. It's not the most drastic one, but it's, it's my favorite one. She's got herself a flip phone that she's tied a camera to. I'm taped her camera to, so she's got a camera phone. Cam camera, camera, camera phone right there. Scotch tape and all. Next one is just... Okay, let me explain what's going on here. This car doesn't have a rear wheel or tire, and they've got this children's push toy strapped to the rear hub, and they're rolling up the road with that. I need, I need a camera phone to capture that, right? Now, legally you can't do that. I guess physically you can do that, but you shouldn't do that, y'all. To ring doorbell, connect wires. No, no, man. just take it out. Just plug the hole, right? What happens when we try to squeeze somebody, something, into a role they're not supposed to be in? Let me say up front today, and y'all have heard the passage, you know what we're talking about this morning, right? I am not here today to do a full-blown topical study on women's roles. But I want to focus, as Paul does in the passage, and we work through books a verse at a time on purpose, and God gives us what we need when we need it. And so Paul focuses here, and so we're going to focus here on the role of women in the assembled church meeting. This. Verse 8 that we saw earlier says, in every place, and that referred, we said last time I was here, which was two weeks ago, in every place refers to everywhere there's a church. In every church where there is a church, this is what the church should do. In every place, everywhere there's a church that has formed and is gathering. Paul would also say in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, and we've got that up here, what then, brothers, when you come together... 
Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, and interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And again, we're not going to dive fully into that verse either. That's a whole different avenue. But I want you to focus on that when you come together. Because that's what we're talking about here this morning. As we look at verses technically 9 through 15, but I included 8 because I think it sets up the introduction to where we need to go. So let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. I I desire then, Paul says to Timothy, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Let's stop there. So, So let's recap where we've been so far and where we left off a couple weeks ago as we started into the pastoral epistles and we started in 1 Timothy. And by, again, just, just by way of reminder, we'll do 1 Timothy, then Titus, then 2 Timothy to, to get through this series. But we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is writing to one of, if not the foremost disciple that he has. A guy named Timothy, a young guy that had come along with him after he met him on his second missionary journey. And he's writing this letter to Timothy to try to best teach him, Timothy, how to best teach and correct the church in Ephesus where Timothy is stationed at that time, stationed by Paul. Things in the church there at Ephesus had gotten off track, like they do with every church, because you know, you know, you know who makes up churches? A bunch of sinners. You know who makes up this church? A bunch of sinners. Okay, So things had gotten off track. And so Paul is saying, this is what you need to do to help correct these deficiencies, these errors in the church at Ephesus. And Timothy's primary mission is to clearly set forth the established doctrine that would govern them and build them up and that governs us and builds us up. Paul had spent the first part of his letter, what we call chapter 1, pointing out that there were those in leadership in Ephesus who were majoring in the Jewish law and myths and genealogies instead of the gospel truth that Paul had proclaimed to them. Paul went on to highlight that gospel, that gospel that he preached, by showing its power to save even him, whom he called the foremost of sinners. I, Paul, am the foremost of sinners, he would say. And that gospel saved even me. And he finished chapter 1 by calling on Timothy to be willing to deal drastically with false teachers even handing them over to Satan like Paul had done to Hymenaeus and Alexander. The doctrine was that important and called for that purposeful of an action. So these instructions that Paul is given to Timothy are that important. It's not negotiable. It's not based on your feelings. It's not based on the cultural tides. Come back to the doctrine, Timothy. Bring them back to the doctrine, Timothy. And if somebody doesn't agree, somebody doesn't want to line up, we may have to go to the extreme of handing them over to Satan. And then as chapter 2 started, and that's where we were two weeks ago, Paul made prayer a matter of the first order. Prayer for all people, including rulers and those in places of power. And Paul made it a special point there in verse 8 that he was calling on the men of the church to pray, which is where we pick up today as a lead-in to verses 9 to 15. A desire, I desire then that in every place, 
which is used to speak of the churches in every place, that the men, the males, again, that was not the generic man word, anthropos, it was males. I, I, I desire then that the males should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So that was the men's roles that Paul highlighted here. Men, be praying, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, in his instructions to this church in Ephesus for what their church should look like, how they should conduct themselves, the men are to pray. And then verse 9, and likewise also the women. The men have a role to play. They have a role to pray. And the men are to avoid things like anger and quarreling. Now, does anybody have a problem with the men avoiding anger and quarreling? Does that cause you problems, issues? Are you upset about that? You're like, you're making me mad right now. <laughs> so the men are to pray and they're to avoid things like anger and quarreling. And likewise, the women have a role in things to avoid. Men, likewise, the women. And what role is that? What are they, the women, to avoid? They should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Hmm. Okay, then. Men pray and don't be given to anger or quarreling. Likewise, women, watch your adornment, be modest and self-controlled. Now, let me ask you something. Are these instructions to women less important than the ones that were given to men? Are they less spiritual? No. Any and all of these things can cause issues with worship and between the members of the church. The instructions given to the men or to the women. So women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. With modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, I'm going to split this up, this, this section here in verse 9. And address it in two parts. Paul says that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Then I'm going to slip over there. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And he says that he should do these things or not do these things with modesty and self-control. He slips that in in the middle there. And I want to split those things up. And I want to see it as the physical and the non-physical. Okay, so the physical first. Women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. So that, that's pretty clear, right? I mean, it's not hard to understand. Paul is saying women should make sure that when the church is assembled and they come to attend this worship service, that what they are wearing is respectable. Okay. Again, a non-issue in my mind. That, that, that's right. They should make sure that what they're wearing is, the, the, the word respectable means modest, well-arranged, or seemly. Again, not too odd. That makes sense. Dress in a way that is seen as appropriate for a worship service. You should not seem out of place with your clothes. And then he goes on to say that they should not adorn themselves as women with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. Now, that's a little bit more specific. Why those prohibitions specifically? Now, remember where we are here. Ephesus, which would be modern-day Asia Minor, smack dab in the middle of the Roman Empire. And Ephesus was a metropolitan city, a cultural and population center. 
And there were two groups of women in Ephesus who would adorn themselves with braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. Two groups of people in Ephesus, two groups of women who would adorn themselves that way. The wealthy and the prostitutes. And there were plenty of wealthy women there. And there were plenty of prostitutes there as well in Ephesus. And so, in order to be in an open worship service where both men and women were present and welcome, the attire of the women should be a non-issue. And what I mean by non-issue is that it shouldn't even come up. It shouldn't be a topic of conversation, either open or private. Did you see what so-and-so was wearing this morning? Well, if the women were flaunting their wealth or dressing in a way that they looked like prostitutes, it's probably going to be an issue. Right? Just maybe. Now, is he saying here that wealthy women and prostitutes aren't welcome in the assembly? He's not saying that. What if a prostitute came in looking like a prostitute? Welcome. Welcome. Come. Listen. Learn. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then make every effort to be appropriate when you come. So Paul says that the women's attire, their physical dress, should be addressed, should be made clear that this attire is to be non-attention-seeking, not looking for people to say, hey, look at me, check me out. It should be respectable. And that's the physical part. And then Paul says the second part that I want to look at is that the attitudes of the women... The non-physical part of this statement should be with modesty and self-control. Now again, the word modesty has fallen on hard times in our culture. Oh, it's modesty. You want to talk to me about modesty? Yes, yes, I do, actually. Paul does. The Holy Spirit does. The Word of God does. Let me read you the definition. It's translated in the authorized version. Now watch this. As shamefacedness. And it's also translated as reverence. Now watch this. Here's the definition. A sense of shame or honor, modesty, bashfulness, reverence, regard for others, and respect. Now let me read that again. A sense of shame or honor, modesty, bashfulness, reverence, regard for others, respect. Now, something that really jumps out to me in that definition is that this is a self-imposed mindfulness in regards to the viewpoint of others. Regard for others is in the definition. You see that? It's basically saying from the definition, I would be ashamed if others thought I was out of line. That's what the word modesty means. Now make sure you see that. Listen, listen, listen. Modesty is not here to be dictated from outside of oneself. It's to be determined by the person themselves. Self-regulation. Self-governance. Self-shame if I walk into a place and everybody's going... Yeah, baby. I'd be ashamed if that happened. That, that's what the word modesty means. I'd be ashamed if the topic of conversation was what I was wearing today. 
I know y'all are like, is it going to be the red shirt or the blue shirt? That's all you talk about with me every week. <laughs> I used to wear the same shirt to church every week, way back in the day, back before we came here. And I did that on purpose, because I'm not very nice. <laughs> Modesty is not to be dictated from the outside of oneself. It's to be determined by the person themselves. It's self-shame, not shame from others. And I think that's a pretty big deal. This is not, you should be more modest based on what I see modesty as, based on my definition of modesty. This is, God, I want to be modest in my apparel, and not just in my apparel, but in my attitudes. I would be ashamed if somebody thought I wasn't modest. So how do you determine that then? Well, see... There's something that God did when we got saved. He placed the Holy Spirit within us. And that Holy Spirit is able to help us know what's modest and what's not. He's able to convict us if we're not modest. And I've got a really interesting idea. What if we quit even complimenting, especially the ladies, on how they look and what they wear? What if our compliments were, I see your godly life. I appreciate the way that you serve this church instead of, man, you look nice today. Maybe then this is a whole different conversation. Self-imposed. Self-shame, not shame from others. And what's that paired with in the non-physical aspect? Self-control, which means sobriety. Or being able to curb one's own desires. Self-control, by the way, is also mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a self-focus here. There's a self-awareness here. One that would be ashamed if they were seen by others as non-discreet or lacking self-control. Let the women dress and conduct themselves with these mindsets and attitudes. The women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Again, the rich women and the prostitutes braided their hair, wore the gold, wore the pearls, wore the costly attire. And Paul said, tell them, don't do that. Be self-governing in your modesty and don't let what you look like or what you're wearing be a topic of conversation on Sunday morning or after Sunday morning. Now what? Verse 10. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul says that this is all just, it's proper for women who profess godliness. And he could have said, he didn't, he could have also said it's proper for men as well. If men aren't modest, we got a problem. That's why I don't wear skinny jeans, just so you know, okay? I wouldn't want y'all talking about my skinny jeans. (laughs) why I don't wear $1,500 sneakers, right? Because there's a whole website that talks about preacher sneakers and stuff. Crocs for me, thank you very much. Sometimes I even wear socks with my Crocs. Paul says that this is all just proper for women who profess godliness. It just makes sense, he says. This is not controversial. It's not revolutionary. It's not a big deal. It's not a, oh, I can't believe someone would say that kind of thing. And yet our culture's made it that, hasn't it? These things are proper. 
These types of adorning are common sense. You want to be godly? This is what it looks like and how you should feel about it. And he's speaking specifically to the women here. Along with good works, a right attitude, and I think, I hope I didn't plagiarize this. I I listened to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven messages on this passage from different people. And maybe, maybe they said this, I didn't write it down. But here, it's an alliteration, and it probably is, because I'm not this smart, okay? Uh, now where I lost my place. Um, it just makes common sense. You want to be godly, it's what it looks like. Thinking, feeling, dressing, and doing. A right attitude, the right adorning, and the right acts. Thinking, feeling, dressing, and doing. What do you want to be known for? Your clothes or your godliness slash good works? It seems that godly women are more noted for their attitudes and actions and less known for their attire. And just as a quick aside, men shouldn't be known for their anger and quarreling. Neither should women. See how this is reciprocal? But there are specific issues that Paul is seeing that's happening there and prone to happen wherever we get together as the church. And Paul's saying, make sure they know. Men... Don't give yourselves to quarreling and anger. Women, be modest in your apparel and make sure that you're doing the right thing by what you're wearing to church. That's literally what he's saying. Men shouldn't be known for their anger and quarreling, neither should women. Women should be known, shouldn't be known for their gaudy or immodest dress, neither should men. And there's more on this in application, but for now we've got to move on. We've got a lot of, a lot of ground to cover. So then verse 11 starts a section that addresses another important issue as far as women's roles in the church. Verse 11. And for whatever reason, John, I'm not working up here. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, as we begin looking at this, let me ask you to search your heart. All of you, all of us, me, you, male, female, how does this statement affect you? Let a woman learn quietly... With all submissiveness. How does it affect you? What do you think of? How does it make you feel? Because I think it's really important for each of us, individually, men and women, to note how saying this, reading this, seeing this, affects you as we move into it. Because I want us to try to approach this without personal bias. Without all the cultural noise. Now remember, this is the Word of God. And my burning question as we start into this section specifically is, do you trust God? Do you believe God? Do you know that if you walk in the ways of God, yes, trials and hardships and temptations will come, but that He is causing it all to work together for your good? Do you believe that God has your best in the very heart of who He is? Women specifically here. And men, we'll get to you guys in a minute. If you're weaponizing this, you're on the wrong path. So where's your heart? Do you trust God when you hear this statement? Do you believe that He and His ways are beautiful, good, and perfect? As the apostle, Paul, the one whose words are as, uh, as of the words of the one who sent him, God's words... As Paul, the apostle, speaks here, remember your God and His goodness. Let a woman learn. First, let's start there. Let a woman learn. Women should be in the service. 
Women should be hearing, learning, and growing. They are not to be excluded from the assembly. Now that was a monumental, uniquely Christian thought pattern, by the way. John MacArthur notes that some Jewish rabbis were known to say that teaching a woman was like throwing pearls before pigs. MacArthur also quotes the Babylonian Talmud, a Jewish document that would have been written when they were in Babylon, as saying that when the Jews were to assemble in the synagogue, quote, the men come to learn, the women come to hear. They didn't care if the women learned. They didn't expect them to learn. They looked down on Not all Jews, and I'm not saying all Jews were misogynist and, and sexist. I'm not saying that. But these were some of the things that were said from the leaders, from the rabbis of the Jewish people. But Paul says here... Let the women learn. Let a woman learn. There may have been groups, large swaths of groups in first century who weren't interested in the women learning. But Paul says, let a woman learn. That's good, right? And how should they learn? Quietly and with all submissiveness. Now, how does that hit? Remember your God. Why would God, through Paul, call for women to learn quietly and with all submissiveness? Well, again, we've got to combine verse 11 with verse 12 in order to dig a little deeper. So let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, reading that, how do you receive that? Men and women, check your hearts. Men and women, male and female... Paul, the inspired apostle, is giving guidance to Timothy on how the church should operate there in Ephesus. And we'll see in the following verses that this is not just a local cultural direction, but a universal one for all the churches. That's where we started, remember? But here, again, women specifically are to be learning in the church service and are to do so with all submissiveness. And Paul says that he does not permit a woman to do two things specifically over a man. He doesn't allow a woman to teach over a man. He doesn't allow a woman to exercise authority over a man. So let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And let's explore that in light of and moving toward these two other things. As women participate in the assembly of the church, they are to learn and do so quietly and with all submissiveness. Quietly is not too hard to process, right? What's it mean? When the church is assembled, like we are here today, let the women learn quietly. That word quietly is the same word that Paul used when he called for prayer for kings and all those in authority so that we could lead a quiet life. It means quietness. A description of the life of one who stays at home doing his own work and does not officiously meddle with the affairs of others. Now hold on to that thought. And tie it in with a woman learning quietly and with all submissiveness. Nothing gives us a case of the yeah buts more than the word submission or submissiveness. What does it mean? The, Greek word, the root Greek word is hupatasso. And let me give you the Strong's definition. I don't know if we got that up there or not, John. We do. It's, it's a long one. And I don't expect you to be able to see all that, but I'm going to read it, okay? This is what submission means, hupatasso. Uh, la, la, la. 40, 
occurrences in the New Testament. Authorized version translates as put under six times, be subject unto six times, be subject to five times, submit oneself to five times, submit oneself to three times, be in subjection to unto twice, put in subjection under once, and translated miscellaneously 12 times. Thanks for that. Here we go. Submission. Submit. To arrange under. To subordinate. To subject. To put in subjection. To subject oneself. Obey. To submit to one's control. To yield to one's admonition or advice. To obey or be subject. And there's some additional information in the definition. A Greek military term, hupotasso, meaning to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In non-military use, it was a, quote, voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Like a good role player. Like a good utility player. Like an irreplaceable part of the body. So first thing to notice is that this word is used 40 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. And the Bible is replete, Old and New Testaments, with pictures of submission. Within the Trinity, there is submission. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son. Is any less part of God? Absolutely, positively not. One God, three persons. We are clearly, squarely, authoritatively Trinitarian. And the Holy Spirit of God is as much God as The Father God is. The Son is as much God as the Father God is. But there is submission even within the Trinity. And none of the people, none of the, that's not true, none of one God, three persons, none of the persons in the Trinity despises their role. But they submit lovingly, willingly to one another. The, The Father does not submit to the Son. The Son does not submit to the Spirit. So there's submission there. In the Bible, Christians are called to submit to God. No problem there, right? All things are to be in submission to Christ. Elders are to submit as under-shepherds to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. All Christians are to submit one to another. The church family is to submit to those in leadership... The elders, the overseers, which we'll talk about next week, Lord willing. The husband is to submit to God. The wife is to submit to the husband. And the husband and wife are to submit one to another. This is not a dirty word. This is not, should not be a taboo subject. Has it been abused? Yes, it has. Hopefully we can redeem it today. And here in 1 Timothy 2, Paul is calling women to learn in the church assembly quietly and with all submissiveness. And then he goes on to say that he does not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man. Again, in the context of the assembled church. So if the women are not to teach or exert authority over men within the church, then it just makes sense that they should learn quietly, not talking, not seeking an office that isn't theirs. And in all submissiveness, knowing their assignment within the assembly and following the commands that are given through the authoritative God, through the authoritative word of God, through the man who wields the authority as he proclaims the authoritative word of God. 
so the woman, the women, learn quietly and in all submissiveness, knowing their assignment within the assembly and following the commands, and hear the teachings of the ones who are leading, who should be in subjection to their over-shepherd, by the way, the elders who are commanded to teach the people of God the doctrine that has been handed down by the apostles, the apostles who are all men. Now please, please, please know and understand that this that Paul is speaking of here in 1 Timothy 2 has nothing to do with abilities. This has nothing to do with ambition. And this has nothing to do with anyone being better than anyone else. It's about roles. R-O-L-E-S. God-given, grace-empowered roles within the church, within the very body of Christ. God has given the authority to teach the doctrine to the elders. And as we'll see in the next chapter, next week hopefully, the elders are men. And since the elders are men, women... And men, who aren't elders, by the way, submit to the authority seen, shown, and sown by these elders. And when it's done biblically, it's beautiful. It's right. It's powerful. Alistair Begg defines submission as, quote, voluntary and willing deference to an equal that God has called to be the head of that relationship. I'm going to read that again. Voluntary and willing deference to an equal that God has called to be the head of that relationship. And here in this particular passage, those equals giving the voluntary and willing deference are women, and the equals that are called to be the head in that relationship are the elders who are men. And just as there is no inferiority in the Trinity, in a marriage, in a church... There's no inferiority implied here with women to elders. It's not about inferiority. It's about the roles that they are called to. God doesn't look at the elders and say, well, they're much more important than the women who they're talking to. Not at all. Regardless of the white noise coming from our culture today that says that men and women are the same with no difference and men should be allowed to be women and women should be allowed to be men and we all should allow each other to assume whatever role we want or feel like we should need, the Bible steadfastly says no and highlights the differences of men and women and assigns them roles in the culture, in the family, and here in the church. And here, elders who are in submission to Christ and who, and who are men teach the doctrine and women submit to that teaching and the authority that those elders possess by God's grace. And they should not aspire to a role that is not theirs, which is the teaching slash leading role, because God has given that role to the men. Some of you may have thought or are thinking or maybe after I say it, you're like, oh, yeah, that. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, but what about that verse that says in Christ there's no male or female? That verse is Galatians 3.28. John, if we can get there. Oh, I might not have it up there. I've got it here. I deleted all of my Bible verses right before the service started by accident, by the way. So that's why it's not in there. I missed that one. There's no male or female. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And I'm not here to fully dive into that verse this morning either. But the context is that salvation is not biased toward Jews, Greeks, slaves, free men, males, females, or anyone else. In the same way that you don't cease to be a slave once you're saved, or a free man once you're saved, you don't cease to be a male or a female once you're saved. For we're all one in Christ Jesus. Male and female have the same opportunity, privileges, and rights to be saved through the finished work of Christ. And males have a role, and females have a role, and as such, males have roles in the body, as do females. And again, if this is handled biblically, and in the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, it is a perfect and beautiful thing. And as per Paul here, I do not permit a woman to teach a man, and that means, in the context, teach the Bible in the assembled church, and I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man in the church. There should never be a place in the church body where women are in authority over men. And we'll talk about why in a minute. And that's not just Paul's opinion. Let me tell you why. Verses 13 and 14. For, verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Dun, dun, dun. Now don't miss the connection here. Look back at the immediate context. and Let's read it all together. We're going to read 11 through 14. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, so, so what's going on here? What's this connection? What's this for, therefore? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, and she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What's the connection? Well, first and foremost, this does absolutely drill home the fact that Paul's not addressing local or cultural issues only. He's rooting his instructions in creation and God's design. Those issues that were around long before Ephesus was ever thought of. Long before the first century. Women aren't to teach men and women are to learn quietly in the church assembly and submissively for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul ties men's and women's roles to the order of creation. Before the fall, by the way. These roles were not born out of sin's introduction. We'll get to that in a minute. Into the world. In Eden, when all was very good by God's estimation. At the end of day six. Before day seven and the rest that came there. In Eden... God says it's very good, and Adam and Eve were in perfect union, perfect intimacy, naked and unashamed. Adam's role was authority, and Eve's was submission. And let that sit there for a second. Then they did sin. And the fall did happen, 
And the curse came in after that. And that order of events is indicative of authority and submission as well. Temptation, fall, curse. Paul says, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now we have to look at the Genesis account quickly. And again, we don't have time to fully exegete it. But look at Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, hold up, 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 let me rewind. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you're not, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And oh, this next clause. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now look at that. Who did the serpent approach in this temptation? The woman. Why? Because she's ditzy? No. The devil knows the roles that God had ordained for the men and the women. He knew that authority belonged to the man and submission belonged to the woman. And he circumvented God's design and led Eve to lead instead of submit. And Paul points out that Eve was deceived. And that was the consequence of her leading. Now watch this too. Paul says Adam was not deceived. Now... Some of y'all might read that and and read that about Eve and say, well, that seems rude. What about Adam? He was not deceived. He knew that what he was doing was wrong. He knew that it was contrary to God's will. And he did it anyway. She's deceived. She's like, well, this is fine, right? This is fine. Now, what are the implications of that? Well, it's showing first and foremost that Adam didn't fulfill his role as leader. When your wife is talking to a snake, intervene, men. When your wife is struggling with, did God really say, intervene, husbands. Adam didn't. He's there with her. He's there with her. And he willingly sinned, not being deceived, but being passive and accommodating. Which is a much worse transgression in my mind than being deceived and saying, oh, oops. Instead of leading and teaching the doctrine that God really did say not to eat from the tree. Was he listening to this whole thing? Did he hear it all and just start to say, oh, no, my wife. And who'd he blame once at all? This woman that you gave me. Passing the buck. 
don't be that kind of man. I saw a meme this week. It said, Adam, when we all get to heaven. He's like, my bad. <laughs> Sorry, my bad. When the man is passive, when the man is accommodating, when the man is not leading and teaching the doctrine of what God really did say, then the consequences of the creation roles not being lived out bring sin. And sin brings disorder and every evil thing and death. And that's exactly what happened in the fall. And Paul uses the illustrations of the order of creation and then the consequences of those creation roles not being lived out to show the necessity of the women learning, not leading. And please don't miss the fact that this is about God-ordained roles, not human abilities. From the beginning, God tasked men with authority. And God tasked women with submission to that authority. And the consequences of not knowing and following our roles lead to sin and disorder. So in the church, when the church is assembled and the word of God is being taught, women are not to teach and exercise authority over a man, but they are to listen and learn quietly with all submission. And the consequences of not knowing or following those roles leads to sin and disorder. Just like it did in creation, just like it did in the fall. So Timothy, there in Ephesus, teach these things because there are consequences that are far-reaching. Just like the fall. Just like the curse. And then we got one more thing in verse 15 and then we'll finish with application. I wish we could spend a lot more time here. Verse 15, yet she, the woman, will be saved through childbearing if they, the women, Continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So verse 14, it ended saying that the woman had been deceived and had become a transgressor. And now we see, yet she will be saved through childbearing. And there's a lot of debate as to what this verse means. I mean, you could read 10 different commentaries and get 10 different interpretations. This is how I can boil it down, I think, to its most basic meaning. So Eve had become a transgressor of God's law when she assumed the leadership role and was deceived. And then following the fall, the curse came in and promised what for the woman? Promised pain and childbirth. But that's not all the curse brought. It also brought a desire to master her husband. But he will have mastery over her. That's what God said in the curse to the woman specifically. But here in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 2, God didn't leave her without redemption. Praise God. He doesn't. He doesn't leave his people without redemption. Yes, it will be painful, but the woman will carry the capital S seed that will lead to the crushing of the serpent's head. He also says that to Eve after the fall. And the ongoing role of women as childbearers is a sign that God has blessed the woman and her role, even after she sinned. And if a woman individually and women collectively continue in their roles in faith and love and holiness with self-control, and they will, their salvation is sure and secure. Regardless of the federal head, Mother Eve, 
who fell and became a transgressor because she was deceived. God gave grace even in the midst of the fall. And that's what I really think Paul is saying here. You're not left destitute or without hope. There's redemption. And one sign of that redemption is that you get to carry kids. And I know some of you are like, I don't know about that blessing. I don't want to be pregnant. But man, what an amazing miracle. Holy cow. There are no holy cows, by the way, unless they're devoted to God. They can't make that decision for themselves. To watch a person form in the womb of a woman is one of the most beautiful, awesome, incredible, awful, and I mean awe-inspiring things that is out there in the world today. And yes, it brings pain and suffering. I know it's hard and it hurts, and that's part of the fall, but... Mary carried Jesus in her womb. The one who would save his people from their sins was formed in the womb of a woman. That's beautiful. And Paul says, yeah, they'll be saved through childbearing. It's just a sign of your salvation. He's not saying you have to have kids to be saved. He's not saying that. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, which is what godly women do. So their salvation is sure and secure. And there's a lot of doctrine, a lot of speculation around this verse, but I think it suffices to say that Paul is drawing attention to the beautiful role of women in God's plan and their beautiful salvation that God granted them after that first sin. Not, Not a lesser being... Not less in rank, but different in role. And I know you got questions, and I know that I didn't answer them all this morning. What my goal? My goal was to say, what does this passage teach about women's roles when the church is assembled like we're doing here this morning? Because that's what Paul's addressing. Three application points, three F's. You're like, well, I'm giving you an effort. <laughs> Female, fall, and faith. Female, fall, faith. Everybody get those application points? Female, fall, and faith. The first application point is female. And God has a wonderful, beautiful, powerful design for women. And the Bible is clear about that. This passage is clear about that. This is not all well, then there's this passage. That's not it at all. This is showing God's beautiful, wonderful, powerful design for women. And the focus in this passage is on the role of women in the church when it is assembled. And it's not a lesser role. It's not an unimportant role. And when we get to Titus 2, we'll see that absolutely women can teach, women can pray, Women can lead and do so many irreplaceable things within the life of the body. Absolutely. But from today, and a couple of spots that we'll look at within the application point, I want us to celebrate God's perfect purpose for the ladies among us this morning. Genesis 1, 26-31, in the creation account. Now watch this. God's beautiful role plans for women. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and male, he created. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now watch this. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you them, male and female, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. All this is for them. Not lesser, not 60-40, not with a prenup. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heaven. Y'all do that. Y'all. Go ahead, guys. Try to multiply and fill the earth by yourselves. You can't do it. Go ahead, ladies. Try to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it by yourselves. You can't do it. Because that's how God made it. And the role that women play is as important as the role that the men play. And that's so this morning as you sit here as well. God has given male and female dominion. And within the context of the local church, He's given men the task and the role of authority. And he's given women the task and the role of submission to the authority that's being proclaimed through the doctrine. Not lesser, not 60-40. All this is for them, male and female, created male and female in God's image. So does God look like a man or a woman? No. He doesn't. God's what? Invisible, right? Jesus was a man. Holy Spirit is not either. But he created male and female in his image. What if we, what if we, as men and women, saw our role within God's plan, God's design, and focused on fulfilling those roles to the glory of God? And then it's not about physical nature how he looks, how she looks, what he's wearing, what she's wearing, how her hair looks. But we focused on affirming each other, male and female, in our godliness and irreplaceable role in God's plan. Because ladies, you got it. Men, you got it. Now, I don't think we can look at these things without looking at Ephesians 5 quickly. Ephesians 5, 22. We're still in female in the roles of women. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, 
so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then jump ahead to 533. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, these are specific roles. Should the wife love the husband? Sure. Should the husband respect the wife? Absolutely. And here in Ephesians 5, there are clear roles. Men, make sure that you love your wife as you love yourself. And wife, see that you respect your husband. Because the fall made those things harder. And the sin that's in us makes those things harder. So Paul addresses that. Again, these are specific roles and it's wonderful in God's eyes. Hopefully it's wonderful in our eyes as well. Know and love your role, ladies. I would not want to be here this morning if there were no ladies here. Especially my ladies. And I want to tie this in as far as this role thing goes for females. Back to what Luke said last week. I'm not looking at things that are too high for me. I'm not trying to attain to things that are outside of my reach. But like a weaned child is my soul within me. Israel, hope in the Lord. For now and forevermore. Ladies, hope in the Lord. And may your soul be like a weaned child within you, knowing that God has your best in mind. God's design is best for you. And that's submission. And that's quiet when the word's being taught. What's my role? Well, I don't know if I like my role. Psalm 8410. Do we have that, did I get that in there? Heck yeah, I did. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather do what God's calling me to do because I'm perfectly satisfied there than be anywhere else doing anything else. My soul's like a weaned child. I'd rather be keeping the door. I'd rather be submissive than do anything else if I'm a lady. Because that's God's role. That's female. Fall. It's fall, y'all. That's not what we're talking about, though. The fall. Not God's design is the problem with God's roles for women and for men. Sin, not God's plan, is all of our problems. So we have to fight sin, not fight God's plan. Genesis 3.16, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's the results of the fall. And the sin within you is going to be activated to the point that you feel that. And you're like, that son of a gun, I'm not submitting to him. He's not worthy of it. And that's what the fall does. That's what sin in you does. The role of submission was in place before the fall and it was good. Sin and the fall made the role seem oppressive. And for all of us, including the ladies in submission, Romans 7, 21-25, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God of my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is not to say that you as a specific lady are a particularly bad sinner if you're struggling with this place in God's economy. 
It's just the presence of sin in the world that makes this role seem unsatisfactory and unfulfilling. And what I'm calling you to do today, ladies, is fight that sin. Fight against the fall. Push back. Christ is able to help you serve the law and design of God with your mind and with your flesh. That's fall. And finally, faith. I don't know how all of this must sound to a lady. I don't know. I'm not a lady, okay? I ain't even close. I'm an ugly, hairy-legged sinner. Bald guy, right? Wearing Crocs, for goodness sake. Is it comforting? Is it exciting? Is it challenging? Is it scary? Unfortunately, in a sinful world and even in a church filled with sinners like us, women's roles have been weaponized by men to subjugate, even to serially serially abuse women. Does that mean the roles are invalid now? Absolutely not. The greater sin is on the men who are using this as a weapon. And it is a greater sin. And it makes walking in faith in these roles even more imperative. We are not to be those men or women who simply tell women to submit. Women can and should wrestle with their roles and responsibilities verbally, prayerfully, and purposefully. And if a woman is in a situation where she is being mistreated, abused, or silenced, we as the church are to labor extensively to support, encourage, and safely give voice to that woman or those women. Andrew said on Wednesday night that this can't be done outside of community. And that is absolutely true. We are all in this together. And if any one of us is unsafe, we all band together to protect the one in danger. So if you have fears about this because you've been abused or subjugated in the past, please let us help you. Please talk to us. I'm scared to. What if he, please, let's find a way. Let's make it happen. And if you ever hear me or Don or Bob say anything that reeks of subjugation or just shut up and listen, you better call us on it. And hopefully you know us better than that. And hopefully you know the Word of God and the God of the Word better than that as well. I want one last passage that talks about faith. This is so beautiful. It's so awesome. 1 Peter 3. And I know I'm over. I don't care. 1 Peter 3, 1-7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Wow, that sounds familiar. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Man, that sounds familiar. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now watch this, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And we're not condoning that, by the way. That's not the point here. And listen, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I love Now, Peter was married. Paul was not. And some people are like, well, Paul didn't know what he's talking about because he was never married. Well, Peter did. And he says, ladies, I know it's scary. 
It's scary for all of us to walk in faith, isn't it? And Peter says, I know it's scary. Don't be afraid of anything frightening. Why? Because this is God's perfect design. And your God has your best in mind. And He created you in His image with a specific role to play in His creation, in His recreation, in His eternal purposes. And He said, I know it's scary, but trust your God. Know your role and operate in it to the glory of that God. And don't be afraid of anything that's frightening. God will take care of it. And your brothers and your sisters will help you take care of it as well. Let's pray. God, so much more needs to be said and at the same time doesn't. Your word is perfect. Restoring the soul, giving us what we need. Everything we need pertaining to life and godliness as Chris read this morning. God, help us as men and women, as boys and girls, to know the roles that you've called us to and help us to walk in them in the power of your Holy Spirit, not being threatened by your call on our lives, not trying to attain to something that's not ours. May we embrace who you are, what you have for us, what you're doing, and what you would have us to do, God, as men and as women. Thank you for your perfect design. God, we thank you, thank you, thank you for women. It is a sign that you love us, that you gave us women. And it's a sign that you love us, that you gave women men. And together, we image you forth, and I pray that we would do that well. Within the church, within our families, within the world, help us to do it by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? (sighs) Now, may the God of peace himself... Sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, ladies and men, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.